Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Commitment Matters. Today's episode is part two of my conversation with Steve Gottheim of the American Land Title Association. Steve brought so much great information to us from Washington, D.C., we couldn't fit it all into one episode. So today, we bring you the rest. Now, if you missed episode one, I recommend you pause this episode and go back and listen to it. Some of the things we talked about last time do come up again in this second half, and you'll want that foundation. Today, we cover the U.S. Chamber of Commerce-led coalition against the FTC's use of UDAP allegations. We do mention Speaker McCarthy and the Freedom Caucus, as well as the debt ceiling debate, which you have the benefit of time that as of this date of recording, we don't have the benefit of. So, listener... Right now, you're coming to us from the future, and we hope it turned out okay. Steve also tells us what many of Alta's efforts and attention will be focused on for 2023, including a discussion of the alternatives to title insurance products matter with the GSEs and how that relates to the focus on housing equity by the Biden administration. So with that, please enjoy the rest of my conversation with Mr. Steve Gottheim. We haven't finished our tour of Washington yet. We've gotten through the White House and SCOTUS, talked about Congress a little bit. I want to come back to that. But I've been watching, I've been noticing as the chamber seemed to be gearing up last fall to primarily talking about UDEP, but not exclusively, kind of seeming to be tapping the baton and warming up the band to address the FTC with some, what the chamber considers overreach there, and also the CFPB. And it's interesting because you can see the FTC gearing up to really try to address big tech in some way, former fashion. That's especially important to us in this industry with regard to data privacy. CFPB, their chambers kind of focused on some of the payday lending stuff and some of the equity stuff. But it was interesting to me to see those moves by the chamber kind of going on in tandem with what's going on in the courts. And so I wonder if you have thoughts to share on any of that. Yeah. So late last year, kind of the second half of last year, the Chamber of Commerce, along with a couple of other banking trades, most notably the American Bankers Association, sued the CFPB over some proposed changes to their supervisory manual. This is the guide that's supposed to tell all of the bank supervisors that the Bureau employs that sit inside most of the large banks out there how to do their job. There were some changes in that manual to enhance in the Bureau's term or totally change in the chamber's term what it means to have an unfair, deceptive, or abusive act in practice, this concept of UDAP. As I said a little bit earlier in this conversation, if the Bureau is going to trip itself up on a major questions doctrine type of thing, it's going to be on UDAP because Mm -hmm. it's inherently vague. The Bureau has not been willing to go down the full notice and comment route that tries to really draw out good examples of UDAP. UDAP is out there really as the prosecutor's crutch because you could always you could always add a UDAP claim to everything and to get all these massive penalties and use that as a cudgel to go get businesses just to settle cases. It's the new mail uh, fraud, right? You can always get them well, on mail fraud. <laughs> right. And what we see is, as you said, at the FTC, that's the way the FTC uses their UDAP authority. The FTC doesn't really ever bring cases against anybody, although they've now brought one against Microsoft for their merger with Activision. Mm-hmm. But the FTC's MO previously had been 
make all of these explosive allegations and then get the business to sign a consent order so that nobody ever challenges their authority on these allegations. Right. The Bureau has been trying to do a very similar tactic, right? This is why the Bureau loves to announce all these big allegations and announce a consent order like the one they did with Wells Fargo at the end of 2022 with a big fine on it. Yes, Um, we're getting this money back for the American people. Right. But UDAP is the area, again, because of how vague that concept is, that if they're going to run into a question of, do you really have that authority? Is that really what Congress meant when they said that you have the authority to regulate unfair, deceptive, act and abusive acts and practices? Did they really mean that? That's where they're going to hit the biggest challenge. And so what you see is the Chamber of Commerce and, and the ABA and others pushing back on this change to their supervisory policy manual. In the narrowest sense of the term, what the Chamber is saying is, hey, anything like this where they're changing a policy manual like this should have gone through the Administrative Procedures Act, should have gone through notice and comment. In the broadest sense, they're saying, hey, the Bureau may not have ever had authority to do a supervisory policy manual like this that tries to define things. In fact, maybe the way they define UDAP is wrong to begin with. They're really trying to kind of push both of those types of agendas. But what you also see is they're pushing this case in the Fifth Circuit. Why? Because the Fifth Circuit is the most conservative circuit and the Fifth Circuit is the one that just ruled against the CFPB and the other case that we talked about. So they're really trying to just use that snowball effect to continue just to attack, 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 attack here. At the same time, they're working closely with those other trades, doing things like FOIA requests and other things like that to really highlight, again, the lack of effort that really went into some of these CFPB changes to highlight just how dogmatic the Bureau has been on a thing like UDAP and and some of the ways that they're approaching their enforcement actions under the hope that they can use that to kind of browbeat the Bureau into being less aggressive in the way they enforce the law. Whether that tactic will prove out to be valuable is is an open question. I know when Congress gets sacked together and there's committees that actually exist and potentially Patrick McHenry becomes the chairman of the House Financial Services Committee, (laughs) you can expect there to be a lot of oversight hearings of the CFPB in that committee. Mm Mm-hmm. It's just when will that happen? When will there be a speaker mm-hmm. and therefore a committee and therefore hearings to actually happen? Right. Let question. me check my phone. Not yet. <laughs> no. Not just yet. Well, and speaking of what's going on in, in the House right now, I've had a couple of questions come in on the subject of the Freedom Caucus. Again, they typically don't get a ton of press because their numbers are small enough that, you know, they do some press conferences and maybe hold up some votes, but typically they haven't been a large enough group to really warrant a whole lot of attention. Suddenly they have everyone's attention. And one of the things that they are promoting that they are fighting for is that they want to be able to defund certain positions on the administrative side of things. And I don't think they're talking about departments. I think they're talking about individual roles within these departments. And they'll specifically call out the attorney general, but it makes you wonder about secretaries of HUD or FHA, other cabinet level jobs. And there's sort of differing views on how possible something like that were to be done, even if you had enough oomph behind you in numbers to get it done. You want to share some wisdom on that for people? Yeah, so the Freedom Caucus in the House Republican Conference is to the House Republicans as the squad is to the Democratic Party on the House side. And the challenge for leadership, and this is the same challenge Nancy Pelosi felt on her side, is you have a very, very vocal minority. You know, the squad is like five or six people. The House Freedom Caucus is about 20 to 30 people total. Maybe consider it more like the House Progressive Caucus on on the Democratic side, which is a little bit bigger. But you get these vocal minorities that 
fight for ideological purity above all else. Mm -hmm. When the city needs and always works on compromise to some degree, especially when you have divided government. And so the challenge for Speaker McCarthy to give up all of these authorities and let rules packages that allow them to try to defund a specific position is that at the end of the day, the only way the government gets funded is through a compromise omnibus package that's going to be massive and not include any of those defunding provisions anyways. And there's a tradition in the House that the House majority does not bring up any bill that is not supported by a majority of the majority. And so it becomes a challenge for Speaker McCarthy because he can't rely on keeping his job if he has to turn to Democrats to get bills passed. Right. And depending on how vocal the Freedom Caucus is, how many members they can sway to any one particular idea of theirs, while they may never get to a majority of the House because of it, if they get a majority of the Republican Party in the House, that could be a challenge for the House to do anything on the topic, especially given that any idea that the House Freedom Caucus has is going to be dead on arrival at the White House and dead on arrival in the Senate as well. And so, yes, the Freedom Caucus is not that big, but if they can convince enough of the conservative but not ultra-conservative members of the Republican Party to back them on something, it's pretty easy for them potentially to get up to 110. And that's really what they have to get to to be able to really neuter Kevin McCarthy in, in a real way. And that's why he's fighting hard against all of the professed requests that the Freedom Caucus or the dissidents or rebels or whatever they're calling themselves at the current moment is asking for in all of these negotiations over the speakership. Well, and that you bring up an interesting point in that you don't have to be a member of the Freedom Caucus to want to, I'm going to butcher the phrase, but get government down to a size small enough to choke it in the bathtub. And so something like that could really require some very close counting in, in our respect of when someone says they're for smaller government, what do they mean? For example, I will never forget sitting at a dinner with a committee chair whose name I won't say, but you'll know who I'm talking about. And this was shortly after Dodd-Frank passed and, well, it was a little ways after it passed and while we were still in the early days of implementation. And this chairman, influential chairman, was saying that he wanted to completely strike down the CFPB as the standard line there of unconstitutional and undo everything. And and I was grateful to be sitting across from him because it gave me the opportunity to ask, well, we've implemented this. We're making this work. We've got the green shoots in the economy, if you'll remember when, <laughs> when that was important too. And I said, so with nothing in its place, which I've not heard you offer anything in its place, you'd be talking about total market chaos. And he looked me dead in the eye and he said, that is right. It would be total market chaos. And that's what the market needs for the market to get fully healthy again. And I was really brought up short because that's the first time I realized, oh, we don't always have something workable in mind. And so when we get frustrated, for example, rightly so, with an entity like the CFPB, we've at least got somebody to go ask questions to. In some of these scenarios, there's just what's in the place of what we don't like now. Ah, we don't really know. And so it's hard to know whether to be for or against something like that because there's no alternative being offered to measure towards. And that'll be the challenge for Congress if the Supreme Court does strike down the CFPB under this funding case, is Republicans have staked out a claim that is either, 
no CFPB at all. They're a terrible idea at all. And so how do you walk them back, especially if they're still the majority of the House, to be able to pass a piece of legislation that would protect the agency or recreate it? It's almost impossible. The Senate, again, because of the way the filibuster rules work, you'd also have a challenge because it's really good. The odds of, of getting back to a position where either party has enough to beat the filibuster themselves without rule changes is also pretty low. And so you get to this scenario where you might create just really, really hard votes for people and either leaders will push those hard votes because it's what they need to do or we'll just get continued stuck in, a, in, a, in chaos of nothing. The, the thing for the Freedom Caucus will be, again, they're a small group, but they also wield a pretty big cudgel in that they're more than happy to and they're really pushing to stack the deck in their favor to allow them to challenge other members of their caucus on a primary basis, but not have leadership back more moderate members on primary basis as well. And that's the big challenge is even if the Freedom Caucus wins some of these things and they continue to push for ideological purity and then they vote against a omnibus package that's needed to fund the government or a debt ceiling increase, which there's really no option. You have to pass a debt ceiling limit. Otherwise, the United States defaults on its credit and all of a sudden, Every one of us starts costing us tons more to borrow money, which mm-hmm. we all borrow enough money every day that we, we, <laughs> we cannot survive as an economy without it. You think the Great Depression was a bad recession? Well, like, what would happen if we had a real default on our on our oh, wow. on the debt ceiling would be really would be really tough. But there are a number of mainstream Republicans that would have to vote with the Freedom Caucus because of the fear of of a primary challenge and not having Kevin McCarthy's money to back them up on their challenge. And that's where again, someone like Kevin McCarthy will have to then speak up and either potentially ask the Democrats for the votes to pass things in the House or put the whole process in chaos. And that's why this push to really weaken the speakership that the House Freedom Caucus is going down, why there are going to be limits to exactly how far any speaker would be willing to go. I mean, the best deal that these folks are going to get is actually from Kevin McCarthy. And that's the sad part. Because any other candidate for the Republican Party that could get the rest of the, the mainstream Republicans on there, the first thing they're going to say is they're going to roll back everything that, the, that McCarthy has given these folks because you can't effectively rule or you can't effectively lead with all of these ideas in place. And that becomes the challenge in all of this and why we may never see a, why it may take a really, really long time until we get out of this Groundhog Day of voting <laughs> for a speaker. Well, once we do get a speaker and then once we get rules and then people get sworn in and can get their committee assignments and all that, we still have a Democratic majority on the Senate side for the next couple of years anyway. We still have a Democrat in the White House for the next couple of years. So do you expect a lot of activity on the House side that gets a lot of headlines and gets a lot of clicks and gets a lot of mentions, but nothing much is going to change the next couple of years? With a divided government, what you expect from a house like this is a lot of investigations, and that is the majority of what the house is planning on doing this year, anyways. And but until they can get themselves organized, they can't even do that function. And so, a lot of investigations, especially investigations of the Biden family, of social media, and the like, especially leading up to the election, those will be major things. But big policy decisions are probably not likely to come out of Congress this term. Maybe some of that, where that is, the exception is in national defense in some foreign aid, whether it's foreign aid for Ukraine and things like that. But big policy will not really happen in these two years in the congressional sense of things, especially with the hold that the Freedom Caucus has on the House Republican majority. There's just not enough out there to do where you can find any bipartisan support for an idea that 
could get Freedom Caucus support as well? Well, I think I've touched on most of the things that they don't keep me up at night, but occasionally one of them will wake me up at night. What are you thinking about that we haven't talked about yet? What are you watching? Yeah, so we, our focus at ALTA this year is is really, again, we believe the regulatory sphere is going to be the most active part of our political environment for the next two years. Mm-hmm. The CFPB is obviously does get a lot of focus just because of the role that it plays and the fact that it is our most direct connection to federal law in, in the title industry. I don't particularly believe that there's going to be much in the terms of new regulation on the Bureau in the next year or two. It's just not their MO. Enforcement actions are the way they are trying to handle things, and they may continue to do that, although we'll see how much they do now, given the challenge and given these court challenges. Where we really are focusing a lot of effort is going to be in the world of money laundering. It is very clear that the Treasury Department is going to place a full proposal to add real estate transactions to the list of transactions that have to go through a money laundering program. Industry has been dealing with this for a couple of years under the geographic target orders. We've had an advanced notice of proposed rulemaking last year, a year and a half ago. So that's where we expect that to happen. In fact, the administration put out in its fall regulatory agenda that they expect a proposed rule sometime in April of this year. So we expect that to happen sometime. Administrations say that, and what that really means is late May, early June at the earliest. But that still pretends towards something this year. So we expect that to be a major focus of our of where we put our regulatory focus. And then we continue to work very closely with the Federal Housing Finance Agency, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, especially on this topic of their willingness to accept alternatives to title insurance for some transactions and why we think that's a bad idea. Not just a bad idea, but a really a dangerous idea. We're going to continue to push the pressure there. I need to ask you a question about that one. Sorry. It's supposed to be a pilot program, right? Or did I misunderstand? It's not super clear. We know from parts of it that at least that there is some part of this that is designed to be a pilot to see, could this even work? Would this even bring cost savings? There's some of it where there's a push just to give lenders a choice and let lenders take on the risk of that choice, which I don't think a lot of lenders realize that they're taking on the risk of a choice like that. More Directly, though, we just think it's the wrong thing for a home buyer to add, have more confusion added to this process, mm-hmm. to have to try to evaluate or be marketed a different product, especially one that doesn't have the same protections as on the owner side of things for for them that would give them the peace of mind to, that they own their home. Third part of it is that very clearly that these alternatives to title insurance are being marketed as exactly like title insurance. And in our mind, if, if you want to claim that you're exactly like title insurance, you ought to be regulated like title insurance, including all the rules and regulations our members face at the state level, which these companies want to avoid. And so it'll be seen whether or not it ever gets much of a takeoff. But frankly, the fact that they're even considering the idea is problematic. And that's why we're continuing to push very strongly to get them to reconsider, pause that idea, reconsider, and go back to working with the industry to focus on their goals if that's what they want to do, if they believe that there's a need to push for for new changes inside of the products that are offered in the industry. Well, yeah, it's a difficult proposition to say, I'm going to save you a half a point, if that, up front, but guess what? You're buying for that uh, 120% liability. I mean, it's just not a very good deal, but Yeah, it is so opaque and it's so complex that I don't think, to your point, the consumers or the lenders understand the distinction and they're only going to become aware when it's a headline. Yeah, I mean, you know, think about the fact that, you know, there's a large number of states, more than half the states, where your standard real estate contract 
obligates the seller to purchase owner's title insurance on behalf of the buyer, Texas being a very common one of those markets. Texas also happens to be a market where the state has set the simultaneous issue rate at $100 or $150. It is a fairly nominal amount in all of this. Mm -hmm. If you're one of these providers that is saying, hey, we've got this low-cost quote, low-cost alternative, it just costs 30 basis points. Well, 30 basis points is almost always going to be more expensive than $150. Mm -hmm. Or if you're one of these other providers that says, hey, we just charge a flat fee of $450. Again, $450 is more than $150. Right. Especially, so now you're you're charging more for less, but you're telling the consumer that it's just like what they were otherwise going to get. That's a problematic and potentially deceptive style of advertising in our mind. And we want to make sure that consumers, they've got a lot of choices they have to make in buying a home. And it shouldn't be made more confusing by making them have to differentiate between all of these different variants of products that may or may not even be compliant with state law. In fact, most of them not compliant with state law to then have to make that decision when what they really should be focused on is making sure that they'll own their home at the end of the day and what colors they're going to paint the new living room. Well, and I have a chicken and an egg question for you. Did all of this come about because there's a push for more of a, in a DEI vein to extend home ownership and one of the biggest hurdles to home ownership is acquisition costs? Or is that sort of the Trojan horse that these companies are using to get the attention of, say, the GSEs? Do you have a sense of which is which on that? Yeah, it's a little more towards the latter of what you're talking about. There is a a great push at the GSEs right now and from FHFA and from the administration to do more with housing equity. The homeowner, national homeownership rate is about 64, 65, 66% across the board. But really, for white Americans, it's over 70%. For African Americans, it's about 50%. Latinos are a little higher. And the reality is that for us to improve the wealth inequality across the country, finding ways to get more people into being homeowners is the, probably the best action that can be taken from a public policy perspective. Homeownership is the single largest source of wealth for most Americans outside of the top 1% of the country. Mm-hmm. And so the more that we can help people become homeowners, the better off. Because of the lack of generational wealth for a lot of cohorts, it is hard to to finance a whole home purchase, especially if you have to put at least 5% down or 3% down if you're getting an FHA loan. Closing costs in general might total 8 to 10%, but we know that's really 6% for the real estate agent, 2% right. for the mortgage lender, and, and less than 1% for title and settlement. And so what you have is the GSEs being very focused on how do we broaden that homeownership pie? How do we support these markets that have not had the easiest time getting in the door for homeownership? Recognizing that, yes, those closing costs or the cost down of payment. a down payment are barriers. And is there anything that they can, we can do to push the pressure down? And so- what you see in, in both the GSEs is hosts of ideas to try to help on this area. And that's why they look at an idea, say, where somebody comes in and pitches them, hey, we've got this alternative to title and it could save people X amount of dollars. They say, okay, prove it. Let's try it. Whereas you know, previously they might have said, prove it before letting somebody try it. Now they're just willing to let, try it and see if it actually works. And that's not the way that policymakers should be working with the most important asset class to American savings in the right. United States. So, um, Well, and you're not doing anybody a favor by omitting the fine print of, yes, this is going to cost you. And I took your point earlier, it's not always a cost savings, but in the, in the instances that it is a cost savings, yes, it's going to be, say, $40 less, $50 less. 
but we're leaving you with a potential liability that we don't leave our other buyers because they had more money to put down and go to closing costs. I mean, it just seems to me such a disservice, especially for first time buyers whom we try to overprotect and overeducate because it is, to your point, it's the best path to beginning to create generational wealth is owning your home. So I just see it as this if it sounds too good to be true, it is. And it ends up being a disservice to these owners. And I don't know how to scream that any louder from any bigger platform. The challenging part for folks is we know that likely the cost savings are not likely to be there, even for most homeowners, but certainly for a lot of the homeowners that are being targeted for programs that are really in the low income and first time homebuyer marketplace are probably not going to fit there in most markets. Mm-hmm. And the reality is, If there are going to be additional cost savings that come into this industry, they're going to likely be driven by the efficiencies of the technology that's being developed by people who are actually in the industry, who know what they're doing, who actually understand what it means to do a title search and therefore understand when you can shorten up that search and and use data science to actually make it work a little bit more efficiently and reduce your cost that way. Over 50% of the cost of a title title and settlement transaction is is people's salaries, right? This is a human intensive industry. Mm -hmm. And- if we're going to reduce costs, it's going to be because you know the people in this industry figure out how to do more transactions with less people, and some outsider is probably not going to be the way to figure that out. More importantly, nobody's growing title examiners on trees, and there's a lot of money trading that goes into understanding and doing title research that this industry puts in place and has the best people doing it because we have those people. We've built them up over decades to do this work. And yes, even we find a whole ton of issues that we don't fix, and that's why we have claims on title insurance. You know, it's hard to believe that some newcomer that is trying to do this in a quickie manner to reduce costs is going to find it and do it in a, a more effective manner and have the same type of claims rates and have the same type of lack of issues for homeowners. Because the reality is that homeowners don't think of title insurance like they think of their auto insurance. They're not just looking for someone to pay out when they have an accident. They want somebody to help them avoid the accident. Mm-hmm. And that's what our professionals do every day. And it is somewhat reckless to try to push homeowners into an area where we don't know that the other people are also trying to help them avoid accidents. Very well said. Is there anything else that you're focused on right now that you want people to know about? Those are the the big the big topics azure that we're working on from our public policy and advocacy perspective. But like with everybody else in the industry, we're we're trying to work to figure out how to support title agents throughout what is likely to be a difficult market in 2023, how to help them utilize technology more effectively to to really make sure that they are able to survive and and thrive into the next upturn of this market and hopefully be in a position to take advantage of when interest rates come down and home sales come back up. Well, we thank you guys for all the work you do on our behalf. And even when we might not see much outcome that's actionable, I know you guys are working in there fighting the good fight every day monitoring everything, keeping in touch on on all of this and keeping us informed. And so we're just very grateful to you for that. And I will say if we end up getting Speaker of the House, Donald Trump, or maybe you'll end up being the Speaker of the House. I don't know if we have anything that happens in the next week or two that we need to amend this. We'll certainly come back and talk about those things. But it sounds like you are feeling that the outcome of this situation in the House is not going to impact us too heavily much. We're expecting much out of Congress this this right. term to be actually happening. And so right. when and if they get their act together, you know, I don't think that's going to change. It certainly would help for this whole mess in the House to get resolved. There is a lot that committees can do, even if it's not passing legislation that can be helpful to 
title professionals, whether it's more oversight over the CFPB or more oversight of FHFA, asking the types of questions about why they made a decision to utilize these alternative title products. None of that's going to happen until the house gets set up. And so we need a house to get set up. And hopefully at some point, adults prevail. This mess gets addressed and we uh, get back to business here in DC. But we are not expecting you know a major piece of legislation. There's no Dodd-Frey 3.0 coming out mm-hmm. in 2023-2024 that we expect to happen given the, just the political realities and dynamics and the fact that in a few months, we're going to start campaigning for president again. So mm-hmm. there we go. Well, and, and I'll remind all of our listeners that it is a prerequisite if you listen to this program that you must also be a TAN member. So if you're not, we'll have a link in the show notes. Go sign up for TAN. And Steve and the crew are going to let you know when there's a call to action for us, something we need to act. And they make it super easy. It's really just a couple of clicks for you to make our voices heard. It's an important part of it. So we always appreciate you coming on and giving us a look at the road ahead. Well, I appreciate you always asking, Barry. Thanks, Steve. You're so very good at what you do. And we're always grateful that you do it on our behalf. Keep fighting the good fight, and we'll be here when you need reinforcements. Until next time, remember, we elected a divided government. It's going to be turbulent for the next couple of years in D.C. Expect a greater number of vanity bills than usual. And those are bills discussed or brought to the floor to bring the issue into the public debate without any chance of the bill actually passing. And we have a divided government in advance of a presidential election. So I can promise only one thing, it's gonna get very weird. So keep an eye on things, sure thing, we always must. But also remember that controversy increases voter turnout and campaign donations. But that kind of controversy does not otherwise build anything, protect anything, or defend anything. And most importantly, you do build, you do protect, and you absolutely defend homeowners and their rights. And unlike much of the noise we will hear for the next couple of years, what you do really matters.